Hello clinicians and hello my peers. We're back for another episode of the Becoming Healers podcast and thank you. Thank you for making time to invest in your personal well-being, to take some self-care time out, just to understand and unpack emotions with us. As you know, this season is really about empowering our colleagues and anybody who's listening with a mental health vocabulary. We know you know all the jargon. We know you know the DSM-5 criteria and you probably spend half of your time helping other people and educating other people on some of the mental health issues they have, people who you're connected to, people who you know, people who you don't know. But we really want to invest this season or rather invest in you this season by helping you unpack the realities of some of the emotions that we're challenged with that can make it difficult to navigate our own personal mental health and put it into context, especially as as we relate it to our work environment and some of the pressures and challenges that are uniquely faced by healthcare professionals. As you know, I'm not recording this season alone. I have incredible help from my two co-hosts, Venetia Gordon and Precious Shukura, who are absolutely incredible and who've been making this such a comfy space to have really difficult and hard conversations. So I'm excited for you to get to know the emotion word for this episode, and it is drum roll, please. This week's episode is called Normally I'm Triggered. So we're going to be navigating the emotional word or the emotional state of being triggered. It's going to be a really, really beautiful and powerful conversation. I'm excited for you guys to hear what we have to say and to glean and to learn. As you know, this is really a resource we'd like to reach anybody and everybody who you believe needs it. So if you listen to it and you found that it added value, it's making a difference. Won't you be so kind as to share it to the people who you think would benefit from this and help us as well get more exposure to ensure that our podcast reaches the right audience by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen from, and then also sharing it accordingly as I've previously asked. So I'm so thankful that you've taken the time to listen. I'm so thankful that you are investing in yourself and I'm so proud of you. I want you to give yourself a round of applause. Yay! Because you've made the investment in yourself and you're taking care of some of the parts of your life and of your story that are critical to you functioning fully and effectively. So well done and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey ladies, welcome to another episode. Thanks so much for joining me. So we're on episode three and today our conversation is around the emotion word triggered. And I want to start the conversation by asking you both, and I'll also answer the question, what are your top three emotional triggers currently? I like she always <laughs> just looks and she's like, Danny's going to go through. going to start. Okay, so I will start. It, it's a very interesting Thing. So emotionally, I think my triggers are, it's, it's, I think it's stuff that actually like touches my heart that mm. triggers me. So it's like things that are like, you know, like unconditional love, grief really, yeah. I think impacts the way I actually manage things personally and, and just pain in general, I think like not not physical pain, but mm. I'm talking about like, you know, the emotional pain. And I think they're all linked. If, if that yeah, I yeah. get you with pain. They're linked. I, yeah. <laughs> so that Precious. puts me, I think, in a, in a strained mm. space. But I've learned how to cope with that and sort of like not react, but almost like, okay, what do I do about it? How do I sure. manage it? So that, that I mean, it takes practice. It's never... And it's never going to be perfect. But I think those are the things that impact me emotionally. Yeah. Mm, I think for me, so I kind of, I approach this from a workplace setting because I think I have different triggers in different areas in my life. But in a workspace for me, I think the ones that I've identified that are consistent are new, new levels trigger me. And... I think I've experienced new levels with lack of support. So being thrown into the deep end without like a floating device or without a rope (laughs) or without anything, (laughs) that really triggers me, causes me a lot of stress and makes me overwhelmed when I have to handle new environment, new responsibilities without any sort of support. Yeah. And then 
I would say the second thing is failure or having negative experiences because I think it frames my mind negatively Mm. for a perceived oncoming experience where I now start almost becoming paralyzed by fear about an event that actually hasn't happened yet um, or that might not even happen. (laughs) (laughs) And that, that causes stress, just like thinking about how bad something will be, could be. And a a good example of that is like pre-call anxiety or coming to work after uh, a bad Caesar the day before and just picturing myself in that space again and having to do that Mm -hmm. all over again. And then I would say the last one is a lack of control and resources. Yeah. That does trigger me because it makes you powerless in a situation where you know you can do something. Yeah. That's very triggering. Yeah. Those are my top three. Yo, both of you have said a lot that I want to comment on, but I'm going to say mine first. I think mm-hmm. mine are, my, my, my most powerful emotional triggers are always interpersonal. Mm-hmm. I think I can, I can often separate myself from the environment and I can often, you know, it's very clear. It can be black and white that, okay, there wasn't a yellow jalco. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it just is what it is, unfortunately. <laughs> But the interpersonal ones are the ones that I struggle with the most. So my top three, I actually wanted to say tone, 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 (laughs) because I'm such a, like, I'm so sensitive to tone in conversation. It's a big one for me. And I try to carry myself and my conversations with like steadiness because I, I understand how even in contentious situations that can really help relay your message and be understood rather than just heard. So tone is a big one for me. Fatigue is another one. Like I was telling a, uh, a friend of mine this week that I don't know why, but being tired frustrates me. Like it makes me upset. So uh, feeling like I can't, <laughs> like I'm tired is a, it's a waste of energy for me. I get so upset. Mm. That's a big trigger for me because I want to perform and I want to do well. And then I I relate to one of the ones you mentioned, Precious, disappointment, particularly disappointing people. So I think the people pleaser in me definitely struggles. That's a big Mm -hmm. trigger for me is just being disappointing in any setting. And I relate then with your, you know, then you build up this anxiety about trying to create a space where you don't have to disappoint people. Exactly. Um, And I've I've learned that I, I, I actually sometimes organize my to-do list based on what I'm most afraid to fail at for that day, which is terrible. So yeah. Thanks for that little trivia moment. I think you guys both said such interesting things that I don't want to move away from. V, you, you, you highlighted that, you know, being triggered puts you in an interesting headspace. What did you mean by that? Like just having to navigate what describe the space for us and because I think it's something that people might be able to relate to, but don't know how to describe, which is the point of the season. So I think when I say interesting headspace, it feels like, so, so when I'm triggered and if I, mm-hmm. and I notice it now, so now I'm in at that space where, you know, I notice that um, grief might trigger me and put me in a very strange space where I don't want to do anything else. I want to feel that, mm-hmm. but I, I, and I don't want to let it go. And I think I've had mm. to actively teach myself to be able to let go of certain emotions, to like let go of the pain or let go of the grief, but in my own way. So I've learned not to rush myself. I've learned not to, you know, keep myself isolated and only deal with it within myself. It's uh, it's it's a hard space to be in because not everybody wants to hear about your grief on a regular mm. basis. But it's so important to have like that one person that you can speak to and they can listen to you like completely supportive, completely non-judgmental and actually be able to hear you when you feel heard. And Mm. I think that's that safe space that a lot of people need. I mean, I can imagine in like, so I deal with crises every day. It's always crisis. It's always an emergency situation. There's always something that needs to be done now, now, and now. So I've learned how to put that practical space. Okay, what can I do about it now? But I always have to give my time afterwards to myself to be able to process it so it doesn't build up. That's a very interesting perspective because on the other hand, 
I mean, like pressures in the clinical setting, it's the, it's the same thing. You know, you deal with crisis. It's now, now, and now. Some life-saving or, or life-and-death situations. And you described a phrase that I feel like we cannot ignore, this <laughs> idea of pre-call depression and pre-call anxiety, you know, where, where you're anticipating a big trigger or, or overwhelming moments. And unlike V, who said, you know, she's found a mechanism where even though she anticipates that there'll be lots of crisis that she'll have to handle, she knows how to separate herself. I don't think clinicians know how to do that. So what's your pre-call depression antidote? I think that's the <laughs> hardest thing to do, to be able to separate yourself, especially yeah, being in that hard. setting. It's so hard. Yeah. It touches think- on your heartstrings. Yeah. Anything connected to your heartstrings is going to be difficult to separate. Yeah. Mm. But also because like one element you can't take away is, especially depending on the type of call you're doing, it's just unpredictable. Yeah. You could sleep for (laughs) three hours. You could not sleep and not eat the whole night. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) You can be faced with, you know, death after death or recess after recess or you have no idea. And I think even if you do tell yourself, I think what helps a lot, what has helped me is firstly telling myself, I'm not going to sleep. If I do sleep, it'll be a miracle and we thank. (laughs) Yes. I've got my sleeping bag in my car. I'm ready if it happens, but I'm not expecting it. Mm. I always have prepared food. I know mm. that there are some people that don't do that, that just see how the day goes. Not don't joke. What does that mean? Yes. Like some people will just say, you know, I'll order from wherever or I'll make a plan. I come like, I'm a dramatic yeah. person who comes like they're going camping. So I have like Me food. <laughs> I'll have food and I've discovered that that makes me feel better sleeping, knowing like all my food is sorted. Yeah. I don't make hectic plans the night before my calls. I don't. It's going to be a plan. It's going to be like a dinner or something because I get so in my mind. I need to do something relaxing and something for me the day before. That that really helps me. Yeah, Yeah, call is a a tough one because I think for me, back in those days, one thing that definitely got me anxious uh, was not getting time off before the call. So you know, just just go to leave the water too. Well, you're like, you still have ward work from Dude. the day that you carry into the, into the core. And you're like, oh. hopefully I'll find a second oh. to go into some of these things. Yeah. I know that's, that's a tough that's one. But I think you guys helped that's us. Hard. Yeah, mm. it is me. Like, and this is just reality. I can't imagine how much more high send it is in COVID. But especially because of like how when colleagues get sick, you just you just are one man down and one man is a difference in a in an already stretched team. So thank you guys for helping us introduce this emotion we'd have triggered and for so vulnerably sharing your triggers. So I, I've been working through an article from Healthline and the title of the article is What It Really Means to Be Triggered and was written by Crystal Raypole in April of 2019. And she defines uh, mental health triggers as something that affects your emotional state often significantly by causing extreme overwhelm or distress. And I think we've all described those or related the overwhelm tied to our personal triggers. And another thing that the article highlights is that they can be internal and external. But I just want to delve into COVID-19 a bit, particularly, you know, for our healthcare professional audience. A lot of mental health articles, some probably and anecdotes have suggested that healthcare workers are, are going to be likely struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder just because of the the very triggering environment they find themselves in and the perpetual nature of it. Like it's literally hasn't stopped We've got variant after variant coming up. People who are vaccinated are dying. People who are colleagues are dying. And that's really not an easy setting to be in. So one of my first questions I'd like us to chat about is how do we raise our personal awareness of what triggers us? I mean, I started the episode by us having to identify that. Uh, But when you're in a work setting in particular, how do you help yourself identify that this one right here? It upsets me. <laughs> how, how do you help? 
Like how? Because I think, and I and I say that to say that oftentimes in the healthcare workspace, you just go go go. Like there's no there's no there's real no time. time. Yeah. for introspection and oh, I wonder what triggered me today but I think it's so, <laughs> but I think it's so important to be aware of it because I, I do think that level of personal awareness can make you a better clinician and colleague mm, yeah I think for me I don't know when I got into this habit okay I've always been a journaler I've always been a journaler since I was like probably nine years old Wow, girl, you're so deep. That's that's good. Yeah. Actually, recently, I haven't been doing it as regularly, but I've always been a journaler. And I think the the, the habit that was formed is reflecting on the day. Mm. So now I don't necessarily do it on paper, but I, I, I still do it in my mind. And I think what's been really helpful for me, um, it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't always happen efficiently. But is thinking about, you know, especially if something I think has triggered you substantially, you yeah. might still feel that way when you get home. So for me, if I get home and I'm feeling like just like hurt or like my mood, something about my mood is off and I can't really explain mm. why. Then I think back to my day and I'm like, when can I think when my, my mood changed? What exactly was it? And I rewind and rewind until I identify that thing. And that for me is when I'm like, okay, that is a trigger. So like you said, it it can be interpersonal. And a lot of the time it is. It's like, oh, I spoke to this person at work. This is how the conversation went. This is how I felt at the end of it. And they said this particular thing. Or when I was with this patient and this particular thing happened. Oh, this is affecting me actually because I'm still thinking about it when I'm not there. Yeah, that's how I raise that awareness for myself. And I think so that's good. really important. Because, I mean, then you're actually, whether you're journaling it or not and thinking about it, that habit of, of making it a habit to actually be able to reflect and say, okay, now I'm picking up what, you know, what has triggered me and what has impacted mm-hmm. my mood or the way I feel about the outside world or myself. It's it's very important, and I think that's yeah. that's one of the things I think that a lot of us, especially, I mean, healthcare workers, especially the young healthcare workers, you know, the the young ones that are still med students and are doing like their final year and are doing like their rounds and things like that. It's because they're so focused on. So, so I have a family member that's just finished his rounds, like finished his internship and things like this at the moment, like this year. And like when I understand what he does, it was just like, you know, do your rounds, still have to do your assignments, still have to go to class, still have to do that. Where's the time to actually process that? It's 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 even harder. But if they get that into mm-hmm. that habit of even doing that for 15 minutes a day, it might yeah. actually help them provide themselves with that safe space or that habit creation. So you're giving yourself that time. And that, and that also comes, I think that habit, a lot of people avoid it, including myself. Because avoid it's it sometimes when, because it doesn't just take 15 minutes, depending <laughs> on what happens, right? Yeah, like, true. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to so, unravel. Yeah. You don't know how long it's going to take you. To how put long has been your, long, your longest uh, reflection, Precious? I'd love to know. Me too, actually. So, like, I don't know. Like, sometimes I'm sitting at my diary, one and a half hours later, a few pages oh later, I'm like, oh, my gosh. But also, I think, like, sometimes a trigger, like, it can unravel you. Yes. And, and makes you, you feel other place. things. Yeah, and yeah. makes you, you know, puts you in a worse place than you were. Because you don't, you don't want to mull, you don't want to mull over it. Because like, because that's also, that's why I had to change the way I think about things because Mm. I would then experience something that would trigger me and then I would mull over it and then sort of like create more thoughts that are associated with the negative thoughts of Mm. any sort of, exactly. And that's often a bad space to be in because you continuously bringing yourself down. So it needs Mm. to be like of that positive nature but it's so hard to get to that yeah especially yes exactly that 
Mm. Yo, you guys are saying a lot as usual, and I'm trying my best <laughs> not to deviate myself from the conversation. But I, I really feel like, because, like you highlighted, you highlighted something so important, precious, about the fact that you've made it a habit to reflect. Um, mm. And I think because reflection isn't a normal part of not just our day, but how we are taught to become professionals. We actually, like, even from Vasi days, as V was reflecting on her cousin, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, we are taught really early on to value the profession and not the person. And so then I then I wonder about the triggering phrases like hero that made a lot of professionals upset. But actually, that's how society has wired us, to, to be so disjointed from a person and to honor the profession. And so mm. then it makes sense how people people just don't realize how much the day impacts who they are and don't have mechanisms to take a moment and sit and unpack. And you're right, reflection is the most unpredictable thing in the world. You really can go in thinking, this is going to be a two-minute solve. I just want to understand where this emotion is coming from. And then before you know it, like it's tears, tissue boxes, and <laughs> you're in another That's world. <laughs> But I, but I think w- one thing that you both highlighted that I want to lean in on a little bit more is just there are environmental impacts at play here. And one of the things that can make it challenging to firstly reflect is this idea that you can't avoid the re-exposure because that's essentially the challenge with the trigger, right? It's fine to go do the work of finding what the trigger is. What's the point when I wake up tomorrow morning and the same trigger is going to trigger again? Like, then what? But also, I think some triggers are, I think, would be triggers for anyone and they shouldn't be there at all, right? Right. And then there are some triggers that are just part and parcel maybe of the environment you find yourself in. Right. And those are the ones that you have to to navigate um, because they affect different people to different extents. For some of the ones that I have found, for example, like one that you were speaking about interpersonal, you know, as you mentioned it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's actually a huge one for me. I really, really, you know, when I look back and I think some of the most hectic times that I've had at work Mm. in terms of the pace and the workload, if it's with a good team, it's, I don't remember it as a negative experience. Yeah. And so that interpersonal that interpersonal sort of that teamwork aspect of work can be protective in a lot of ways for triggers, I think. And so like for me, for example, I know that I'm a teamwork person. And so when I walk into an environment where that is absolutely not the case, it's every man for himself. And sometimes people even leave their work for you to do. Mm. I know that 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 triggers me, but at times there's nothing you can do about that because Teamwork is not a prerequisite in someone's job contract. Goodness me, girl. Force them to do <laughs> right? It's like, oh, it would be really nice yeah. if we could all work together for the betterment of our patients and ourselves. But if someone doesn't want to do it, they don't have to do it because that's not the work culture in that environment, Right. And so you have to step away and say, okay, what am I expecting from the environment and what am I getting? And is my expectation harming me or triggering me? So for me, a lot of the things I've found is that my expectations are the things that actually trigger me because getting into a new environment, getting new responsibilities and not getting that flotation device when I'm in the deep end. I'm not necessarily owed the flotation device, but it would be really great to have it <laughs> so that I can float. But the fact that I've expected it and not gotten it becomes a trigger, if that makes sense. I don't know if I've even answered the question. Ma'am, no, but expectation is what you did. Because <laughs> <No>. expectation <laughs> is a big word. Yes. Yeah. It's a massive word. And I think that's something that a lot of people you know, especially healthcare workers, especially medical students, especially the registrars of the hospitals, the expectation that they have on themselves and of their groups and, you know, the expectation their families have on them 
you know, their peers have on them. There's so much there that, you know, you only have, you're only thinking expectation. Yeah. So it's like almost not even realizing, okay, am I this person? Am I precious? And how am I then now managing my space or my being or my humanness? Because I mean, exactly what you said is that, I mean, the concept of hero, but we're all human beings. We all feel the same things. We all experience pain. We all experience grief. But the expectations is making it so that you don't have to. You you don't you're not expected to. And that's that's oh. that's a big thing. I'm officially triggered and not okay. I just want to state that. <laughs> that's an obvious right now. I'm officially like not okay. You guys said a lot, Precious, you said a lot, especially I agree with the expectation being like the number one word there. But I feel like it all boils boils down to we aren't entitled to our expectations. And that's really, really hard to receive. I mean, I think of this organization. I built this on my expectations not being met and not wanting to settle for less and wanting to cultivate environments where those expectations can be expected and we Mm. could meet each other halfway. So what does it even mean? Because, I mean, a large proportion of the question that I'd asked initially was also coming from the fact that, like you speak of support and floaties, and we know that seniority plays a senior leadership plays a big role in those environments being cultivated. But that idea that like, that's not in the contract, competencies are not part of the contract, like to be competent as a team player is not a part of the deal we signed is actually terrible. um, frustrating. But you said something so important. It's so important then to reevaluate our expectations suss them out against the environment and then make a decision to see whether this expectation is actually helping me here. And I think that's, that's going to set a lot of people free because I don't think the goal is for us to lose our expectation or to lose our standard for ourselves as well. You know, we've spoken about it before. Where Definitely. We said, if you yeah. get into a context and ward rounds aren't a thing, you don't have to not do the ward round, you know, but don't be shook when nobody joins you because. Yeah. <laughs> and when no one else has done it. And when no one else has done it because you like, you can't, I mean, you can, you can raise it with the authorities who listen, but I think you're right. That interpersonal nature of our job, that's, I guess, where we get to solve some of the challenges with our triggers is to recognize that our expectations aren't entitled to us and that doesn't mean we have to drop our standard or even you know raise people to an awareness that better can be done but often the reality is people find resistance and when you do mm-hmm. protect your mind protect your heart move on keep your standard but adjust and I think that's that's I guess it's two words it's expectations and adjustments you know creating a capacity through reflection to adjust according to what you are able to offer uh, based on what the environment is feeding you and mm. protecting your mind because of that. That was deep, y'all. That was, uh... <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot for me. It's a sad reflection though. It's not. It's very sad. I yeah. Agree. yeah. It's a sad one. Yeah. But it's it protects another... your mental, it protects your peace. It protects your peace, but, but I think it's also one that we, we don't want to acknowledge, you know, I guess the backside of having to hope is having to deal with the reality of people's apathy sometimes and the reality of their personal despair. Mm. I I can recall countless events as you, as you were reflecting it, like countless events where I was frustrated at leadership, at colleagues. And when you said, that it's expectation. I was just like, wow. <laughs> Humbling <laughs> every other version of myself. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I, I never said I was going to be that person. <laughs> Why are you making yeah. that person? But also it's like frustration with, with management and leadership as well. I think that there are legitimate frustrations, but then there's also, this is something that someone said to me who is a psychologist that sees, you know, all levels of, healthcare workers from management to like interns, you know, and she was just saying that, you know, you feel this way, but you know, no one is equipping the people at the top or 
Facts. giving them the the well done that they need or giving them the support they need. And so how can they view it as necessary to give you the support you need when it looks like you even have less responsibility than them? And that was a perspective shift for me. Yeah. To be like, oh, okay, you are also struggling within the very same system. So true. That is a very real thing. Mm. (laughs) It's so real. And I think that the challenge is also, you're right, there's no like clinician leadership course you can go on right now to help you be a better leader as a clinician. It's not a prerequisite mm. to have an MPA when you walk into being like a hospital CEO. You can mm. just like roll with the punches, but it's not what was in the MBCHPC, unfortunately. Exactly. And there's not enough trips in the world that will have helped you to understand how to navigate that role. And I think you highlighted something so important is that I always say of parenting that kids don't Kids don't listen to their parents, they emulate, right? They don't, no matter what you say to them, they just do what they see you do. Mm. And I think sadly in healthcare, that's the same thing. Seniors don't listen to what juniors are saying or what peers are saying, they emulate. If you worship the ground that the surgeon worked, worked on and they did it because they were tough and mean and cutthroat, then that's who you're, that's who you aim to become. So I think it's also about trying to raise a different mirror for ourselves so that we recognize the actual loopholes in the standard that's been raised before us and challenge ourselves to be authentic um, so that we're more valuable. Because authentically, I think it's hard to be mean. And authentically, I think it's hard to be to be satisfied with the fact that you're not productive or that you don't have outcomes that actually help your hospital. But if you're not willing to be authentic enough and say, shucks, I suck at leading, you won't go on a leadership course. Or shucks, I actually don't understand administration. You won't find the skills you need to be a better administrator. So I think, you know, when we're connected to our authenticity and recognizing the weaknesses we have in certain levels, as you mentioned earlier, we can do better by ourselves and by our teams as well. Exactly. And then it's not yeah. an expectation. Yes, then it's your authentic <laughs> self. Because your authentic self is vital. Because <laughs> I, I really yeah. feel like people, if, if, if a person was authentically themselves, and that's exactly it, is that if you feel, you know, I'm slacking in a little bit of this, maybe I don't understand it. I will actually, to improve myself, I will make that effort. And I think that's what it comes down to. It's not about being that, and I don't want to say person, but not being that role. You have to be the person within that role and you have to bring mm-hmm. your authentic self to that. So I think that's one of the things that like when I speak to medical students, I, I won't lie, whether it be through the peer support group or whether it be like, you know, the different Varsities, when you have like the Vits Physician Society, or you have like these different groups where you talk about, you know, mental health and the value of support. It's about them supporting each other, but saying that this is an open space. Mm. And I think that's almost creating a different dialogue. And I think that's vital Mm. because if we create a different dialogue with the, with the younger ones, there is some hope for that to be emulated exactly that through the entire space to say that this is what we want to teach and this is what we want to not only teach, but sort of like mirror to say that, you know, Mm -hmm. this is what we want in a system to look like that's supportive, that's non-judgmental, that's, you know, like kind, a simple word, just kind. Kind. Kind, Thinking of others. Considering others. Like I've, I had a thought while you were saying this, is like I always like, you know, I think when you're a student, you're closer to it. You you try to imagine the type of doctor you'll be. And maybe when you're an intern and you're moving up the ranks, it gets harder to recognize who you are versus who you are hoping to become. And and I think <laughs> Precious is like, because I mean, in my mind, I'm kind, but I'm sure there are people who could report me and be like, you. Yeah. Like, like, you're that, that's, was like, yeah. They're tweeting yeah. about you. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> even extending um, um, on that thought, I, one of the things I always thought about, like, what would a safe ward round start like? Because I think starts to things are so important. And recently we had a conversation at work just around the recent riots that happened 
Um, and I had made a suggestion that I was like, oh, if this was how Wardown started, I think we'd have so much more clarity about the people we're working with. And I suggested that like we have like an emotional safety barometer, like one out of five, where are you today emotionally? Imagine if you started your day with your colleagues being aware that, hey, somebody's on a one today. They don't have to tell you why. Yeah, don't try but- me. <laughs> I'm a one today, so don't get near me. And and what would it mean for for there to be like a a support structure for for that type of expression? You know, uh, people under under three. This is how we're going to support you on this day. People above mm. three. Here's how you can support the team today. So I think it's really about, like you said, creating environments where we can have these conversations, but then also challenging ourselves about what we what we believe would be ideal for ourselves on either end of those extremes when you want to experience that. And that helps me lead into sort of my closing questions. You've spoken a lot about triggers, but I think there's also, you know, a conversation that that probably goes hand in hand with that is just understanding your trigger warnings. And I think throughout this episode, we've highlighted some of them in different ways, but I think I've mentioned it in the episode before I was reading a book recently and the author was just speaking to how she was having a conversation with her husband and he corrected her and uh, he asked her why she gets so upset when she's being corrected. And she then alluded to this idea of languages. You know, everybody knows the five types of love languages. They can tell you they're all five or three out of five. But do we understand our correction languages? And I wanted to expand on that by asking you both, what is your trauma language? How would you want someone to handle you in states of trauma? And then the second question that goes with that. So you're gonna ask two, you're gonna answer two questions. The second is what's your healing language? How do you want people to handle you when you're working out healing? Because I think to be triggered is to be navigating both of those spaces. You're either be, be being reminded of a trauma or working through how to navigate healing that space. So what does it look like, particularly in the workspace? What's your What's your trauma slash healing language? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, trauma, I don't know if I'm going to answer the question correctly. That's not right or wrong. In the, in the moment of trauma, my language is, I think, normalizing what's happening. I'm with you. For me, very receptive to that in the moment. like. Okay, obviously my worst case scenario in my mind is always like recesses or deaths yeah. or like difficult surgical procedures. So if something was really tough, just having someone there say saying, no, that was really tough. Yeah. You did, or like you did your best or no, 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 this, this type of a situation is tough and it's tough for everyone. Mm. You know, it's just like, you know, sometimes I'm in theater and the scrub system with makes a difference for my whole day. Yeah. <laughs> whole day. Because yeah. there are some people who are just there like, yo, this is tough, but I'm here with you. Let's do it. You got this. Yeah. But it's a tough situation and it's a traumatic yeah. situation. So for me, it's like that normalizing and that reassurance. I, I do need that. I do need like a little bit of a hand squeeze, if you will. Yes. Yeah, yeah, love it. Me for you. I think it's. I think it's very similar, actually. To Mm. to to be reassured that you know, like this is hard, and it's okay to not be okay. But Mm -hmm. you know, there's. I'm here with you, and we're doing it together. I know, like at Sadag, we everything is a crisis. There's always something that's going on. There's always something that you're having to you know, having to argue with the hospital or you having to, you know, find like the police people to come and do their job. And it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult in that space, but when you have like your, so I'm very good in teaching people practical stuff. So my mind always falls into that practical space. So I'm always like, okay, make a list. This is what we're doing, you know? And that's often my way of like, okay, fine this is a difficult situation. This is Mm. definitely a traumatic information, but my mind always goes into practical. Okay. Step one to step four. This is what we're doing. Write it down. 
tick it off. We're okay. That's fine. And then sort of saying, oh, that was hard after that and maybe debriefing within that group. And I think that often helps. Mm, definitely. I resonate with both of you, like with like with the ability to bring the practical support and then also mm. just needing that reassure, reassurance. So I said mine were peace and patience in moments of trauma helped me a lot. Um, and I recall like definitely one of my proudest moments in in clinical medicine was I remember there was a recess that was happening. We had an organophosphate poisoning. Kid was bouncing around in casualty two minutes later, you know, that organophosphate was in and we had no pulse. So it was a big atropine recess and I had called my senior down and I had the intern and it, I think it was one of the first times the intern had to recess and I gave her the instructions and she was compressing and the senior came down and she was just so shocked at how calm the space was. She was like, is this you in a recess? Like nothing is shaking. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it doesn't. So we're going to scream at the nurses for what? And we're going to shout at the intern for what? It serves no one right no now purpose. to be hysterical. Exactly. Just treat everyone out. Yeah. So I think for me, I've, I've really fought, even in my, like, that's why I said one of my triggers is tone. Cause I'm, I try to be so careful with tone. It's just to, cause it can change the entire atmosphere when you just come in two decibels lower and <laughs> just bring the right energy. So for me, mm-hmm. peace and patience, just bringing an atmosphere of peace and calm and patience. So you can actually execute well because anxiety, like you said earlier, fear is crippling. Like, when you're in that space and you're shook, it's just not productive. So those are definitely my my trauma languages. And I, I'd like to receive the same when I'm going through something. It's just calm me down, settle, you know, this head squeeze you were speaking to. And then let's be patient. Let's work through it. Let's go with the practical steps in the order we know how. And then my second question was, what's your healing language? How do you how do you want someone to support you while you're trying to heal through something? I feel like I'm happy my, to go first. <laughs> I feel like I feel I'm, I feel like my 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 now fiance actually knows exactly how to do that for me. Come it's on, like fiance. I just yes. I just need that someone to just be there, not not speak to me or not, mm-hmm. you know, almost like like tell me that like you're healing or tell me that I'm supposed to be feeling this way or not supposed to be feeling this way, but just being present. I think that's that's very important for me. Just it's just being mm. present. I think that makes oh, that good. makes me feel all the more different because I'm, I'm not even reacting badly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not reacting to anything. I don't feel like I need to react, and I think that's sometimes a very nice thing of just you know being around someone that's completely non-judgment, completely supportive, just being yeah. present and being there. And I think that's valuable. So good. Mm. And that's hard. That's hard it's to be so, if you, especially when so you're with a, a partner in a, a partner who is in a carer type of job where yes. they have a high frequency of those moments. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's tough to be that partner. It is. It is. Shout out to those partners who are supporting <laughs> carers. Well done, Going guys. The most. <laughs> Shut up, man. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to go, Precious. You can close us off. For me, my healing language, as you were speaking, um, V, I was like, you know, I really like to feel grounded. So like, I remember when the recent riots came, I felt like I'd moved with the pain so intently that I felt like I I couldn't even feel the ground beneath me. So trying, like just just centering myself and reminding myself that I'm touching a chair or my feet are on the floor. It's definitely, definitely an important part for me. But then I, I also think strategy, faith and love for me are important. Like a plan, man, having a plan for how we move forward for me, because I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm trying to be unstuck <laughs> is the goal. <laughs> Usually when I'm healing, I'm just like, okay, we're here, but like we got to move. So mm-hmm. some sort of strategy to exit or even if it's, we can't exit yet, just to be clear about how we're moving through the emotions or through the emotions and my faith 
also really grounds me most of the time. And then just feeling loved in that place, loved in that broken state or that challenged state and knowing either love from myself or love from people around me that it's okay to look like this or or to feel this way as I build, build towards something better. Mm. That last one, eh? Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> the love of oh, the love, the love, man, the unconditional love. love. The I mean, unconditional love. That's what it is. Yeah. And I'm finding for me more that it's coming from myself because I think we have we have huge expectations. Going back to that word of what it would look like to be loved if we were lovable, but I think sometimes it's not about making yourself amenable to be loved. It's just about being authentically who you are there. And I think mm. that once you can safely accept that within yourself, it becomes easier to present it That's to the true. people who you need it from. That's true. That's true. That's it takes time. It takes time. It takes work, man. It takes time. <laughs> it takes process. work. Yeah. Absolutely. The lifelong process. For me, for you. I think along the lines of strategy but for me I really value or process things really well when I understand what they are Mm, Um, so like putting like putting words to things or understanding processes so if it's not with like a professional then I'm like reading up on something like okay I'm Mm. feeling this way let me try to break it down. Where does like how is the process of this thing mm. so that I can understand how I'm feeling before I can even get to that step of healing? And I think That's the great. patience in my environment from the people who are around me to have patience with me to go through that process, verbalize that process to myself and to them as well. So, for example, if so, if it's a trigger or traumatic event or Maybe it's a trigger interpersonally. Mm. And then I go mm. back to myself and I'm like, mm, something happened there that made me feel mm. away. Don't know what it was. Let me sit down. Let me look this up. Let me Google this. I'm always Googling. That's my thing. <laughs> I can see I'll that. Google I'm it. sure and you can Google like, oh. history. Yes. And for me, it's like, it feels like a neutral source of information. Because this Google, this site doesn't know me from above. So this is not, not, at pers- all. not a personal attack. They just <laughs> it's real. It's <laughs> literally just laying out the facts and I'm like, tick, tick, tick. Okay. All right. Cool. And then I process that and I start to heal from that. Cause I'm like, okay, yeah. I understand it. This is objectively me being X, Y, Z. Cool. Yeah. I like that Those objectively. It's hard to hear from other people because you think, oh no, it's influenced by this or it's influenced Mm. by that. Mm. You don't really receive it in the same way as if it's like black and white from an external source. Or Yeah. yeah. So that's what I've learned for myself in that healing process is that I really give a lot of power to understanding and naming things. Come on, clarity. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Ladies, it's always incredible to spend time with you. As you know, when we close, we just highlight one way we're being kind to ourselves in this really challenging, hard time. How did you do that for yourself this week? <laughs> Precious, why is your head so far down? <laughs> I, always, I always struggle with this question. Mm, I have been more... I am one a person who likes to overschedule. I'm very <laughs> ambitious with my schedule. You're very not ambitious with my schedule. <laughs> so, I so get this it. week, this week I've been so realistic where I'm just like, no. Well <laughs> this done. is what can be done in a day for me to actually be a sane human being because I've realized like the wind down time that I need. That, that time is actually critical, especially now that I'm in, you know, studying for exams and everything. Yeah. It, it does bring on more stress. And so I have to mm. be conscious of that winding down time. I can't sacrifice it. So that's how I'm going to Well done. 
V for you? I won't lie. I think I've, uh, that is exactly, so I'm an overscheduler as well. I will just schedule the, the, the crap out of my diary. Every, every, every hour will have something that I need to do and I will never say no. So I'm very bad at saying no. So, mm. but this week, because I was a little bit unwell, I have actually said to myself, I need to be kinder to my body and I mm. need to rest a little bit more. So I have actively been doing that. Was not a napper, but I am trying. <laughs> Come <laughs> I am on, trying. that's your life. Yeah. So, so that's 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 what I've been doing. Just trying to be kinder to myself, just for a moment, so I get to my one hundred and twenty percent space again. Come on, good job, V. Well done. For me, I think it's it crosses both your lines. I think this is a group of over schedulers so we have a problem mm. <laughs> so we can officially define ourselves as having our own support group it is what it is I struggle with the same things and um, I think for for me particularly in the work environment the one way I was kind to myself was uh, it's probably going to sound bad but allowing myself to 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 disappoint people's timelines and essentially my own so I can finish one thing at a time. Like I just gave myself permission to not meet the deadline because I was meeting mm. another deadline. Um, and it's not like I was sitting here sleeping, <laughs> but yeah. it just has been a lot of work. So one way I've been kind to myself is not punishing myself for not meeting people's mm. deadlines, but, you know, picking up the phone and saying, hey, I wanted to deliver this to you by this day, but it hasn't happened can I have an extension? And mm. I mean, the people pleaser in me was screaming while those things were happening. But I was just like, like you said, precious, in a day's work, this is what I've been able to do. And I think the problem with overscheduling is we deeply underestimate how long tasks take. So, I mean, I had planned, for example, to do one thing. I thought it was like a two hour job or eight hours gone on that one oh thing. Oh my so. goodness. <laughs> And then you just set yourself up for disappointment. For failure, yeah. Exactly that. That's a trait of perfectionism, by the way, guys. So we're not going to be a whole topic, but yeah. Perfectionists versus highly effective people. I encourage everybody to go and look that up because there is a difference. Mm -hmm. Highly effective people don't punish themselves for not doing certain things and they achieve more because they're not stuck in that cycle. So yay us breaking our cycles. That should be an episode. Yes. (laughs) And I've also started coloring. Come on. Yes. Yes. Doing well. It's amazing. It's so therapeutic. It is so therapeutic. It is. Okay. And I hope our listeners also find their own little quick, safe tools to be kind to themselves. Mm-hmm. Ladies, these conversations always bless me. I can't wait to listen back to this one because there was a lot that you guys said because I feel like I need to feed off of what you said. Thank yeah. you so much for your time and your investment. It means everything. And thank you for listening to our listeners. See you next week. <laughs>